We are about to turn our attention yet again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I think now is a good time to remind everybody of the utmost value and importance of the Word of God. It's living and active. It will change your life. And so we, we believe that the Word of God should be accessible and available to everyone. And so if, if you're sitting here and you don't own a copy of God's Word for yourself, we're, we're glad you're here and that you can, you know, follow along, but, but you need God's Word. And so if you don't have a copy of God's Word, I don't want you to leave here without one. And so if you look at the back of the pew in front of you, you'll notice a bunch of black Bibles. Take one. It's yours, okay? We want you to have the Word of God. Read it, love it, apply it, study it, submit yourself to it, and you will see that it is indeed life. And so that is another gift to you. Freely we have received, and so freely we give. And so now, turning our attention to what the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul teaches us, we read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that is verses 1 through 17. The Apostle writes, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seed in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always give thanks to you, or give, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, 
comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you have indeed given us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. And we ask that even now you would comfort our hearts and establish them. That we may do good works and speak truthfully in love. We ask that you would open our minds to what your word says, that our hearts would be turned to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, you know, this is week two. We opened this up last week by talking about how this chapter goes head on at eschatology, uh, how the, the concept of end times the concept of Christ's return, the concept of judgment, it, it kind of looms in the background. It is the backdrop against which Scripture occurs. And so every New Testament book either directly states or infers the coming judgment. And it's against this backdrop of coming judgment that the gospel of grace is presented in which the gospel of grace makes sense. You have no reason to repent of something unless there's a coming judgment for the very things from which you should repent. And so eschatology, the, the study of the end times, is vitally important. We talked last week about how with the coming of Christ, his death and his resurrection put an end to the previous age. We, we fail to see sometimes just how significant his death and resurrection was. He didn't just secure our salvation. He ended the previous age. And he has ushered in this last age. And so in a very real sense, we are in the final days, the last days. This is what the New Testament says multiple times. We tend to think of the last days as being that period of time immediately preceding the return of Christ. When in fact, every day since the resurrection of Christ is in the last days. There is no more ages to come until his return and he will establish the new heavens and the new earth. In which case, we will live in that blessed estate forever. We talked last week about how since eschatology is a, an essential doctrine of the faith, there are certain aspects of eschatology that are essential to orthodoxy. You see, for example, in even the Apostles' Creed, there are certain aspects of, of end times theology that are asserted even there, that all Christians believe. And so, for example, we said that every Orthodox Christian believes that Jesus will return bodily. That the angel was telling the truth in Acts 1, that the way in which we saw him go is the way in which he'll come back. He will descend bodily. We believe that the dead will be raised 
That is something that every Orthodox Christian affirms. That there will be judgment. That there's an eternal heaven and an eternal hell. That there's a new heavens and a new earth. This every Orthodox Christian affirms. But we also said last week that passages like this have facilitated a certain degree of speculation amongst believers. And this doctrine of eschatology has so many little minor threads that can be chased out that we in our finite frailty and dare I say folly sometimes make mountains out of molehills and make relatively minor points tests of orthodoxy. Let me say that that is wrong. Okay? If you affirm the tenets of orthodoxy and if your brother and sister in Jesus affirms the tenets of orthodoxy, their eschatological position is basically sound. But there are certain views that more or less comport with a consistent reading of Scripture. We are called not to celebrate infantilism and immaturity. We are called to grow. And so we should study. We should seek to rightly divide the word of truth. We should seek to present ourselves as, as a mature believer in Christ, firmly established. And so I'm fine with a little intrafamilial uh, heckling. I really am. You know, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur, they were good friends and they agreed with much, and they disagreed with much, and that I'm fine with that. But we don't unchristian each other over differences that we may have, because the truth is, is that in his wisdom, the Lord has seen fit not to give all the details. Do you know how much ink has been spilled over these verses, these first 10 verses in chapter 2? How much ink has been spilt over what exactly is this rebellion he's talking about? Uh, what exactly, who exactly is this restrainer? And then not to mention the man of lawlessness and then sets himself in the temple of God. What, there is so much ink that has been spilled. It's mind-blowing. And everybody's sure they're sure. And we missed the point. The point is, is the people of God were being disturbed that someone had said that Paul was saying, so they were falsely attributing information back to the apostle, that the end was here. And so the people of God were convinced that their sufferings meant that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, today. That's why some of them had gone so far as to quit their jobs, as we learn in the next chapter. And Paul is saying, yo, hold your horses. There's a lot of suffering going on, but, but guess what? There's some stuff that has to happen before Jesus comes back. He wants to comfort 
and strengthen his people, which is where he gets in the very last verse of this passage. So that is the goal, brothers and sisters, of eschatology, to be comforted and to be established, that you might be equipped and steeled, ready, set firm to endure, to prosper and flourish in the face of adversity. And so, everything that's revealed about the coming days is revealed for that purpose. In 2 Thessalonians, we're invited to consider the end times. I mean, Paul brings it up here. And we talked last week that there's four basic positions of how to interpret these prophecies. There's the preterist position, which says that most, if not all, were fulfilled in the first century, specifically surrounding the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, there's the historist position, which says that these things just are fulfilled throughout history. Uh, there's the futurist position, which says almost every single one of these pertains only to the few years surrounding the immediate return of Jesus and that they're all to be fulfilled yet. And then there's the idealist position that says they refer to types. And so any one of these passages can have multiple reference points and find fulfillment throughout history. So for example, the fall of Babylon and Revelation is a type of, of God's destruction and, and, and of opposition to any civilization that opposes him. So you can find echoes in, in the fall of any human city or any human civilization that so opposes God. And we said that part of the problem is that there's a little bit of truth to all of them, all these views. And we said that the task of eschatology, where it gets tricky, is you have to remember that in Scripture, we have those signs that are presented that are pointing to the end of the age that was coming to an end. So yes, there are prophecies in the Bible, in the Olivet Discourse, that point primarily to the destruction of Jerusalem. Because the end of that age was at hand. And the whole reference point for how people worshipped and related to God was about to change. But then there are signs given that characterize the entire end times. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, things like that. That every time there's a conflict, every time there's a natural disaster, you should be reminded that things are on schedule that the train is running on time, that everything is moving to its appointed destination, and then there are signs that the end is truly at hand. And so, we're stuck now. How do we apply this? Well, how you apply this and how you think about this passage is directly related to how you think about Jesus. What do I mean? Can anyone tell me what is the fundamental Christian assertion about Jesus? It's three words in English. What is the fundamental Christian assertion about Jesus? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the fundamental Christian assertion. 
You see it in Romans 10, 9. Whoever confesses with his mouth that Jesus is Lord. The lordship of Jesus is an essential truth regarding the person and the very nature of his ministry and his office. In 2 Thessalonians, Jesus is referred to 12 times. 100% of those times in this book, it's Lord Jesus or Lord Jesus Christ. He's never referred to as Jesus Christ or just Jesus. It's always Lord Jesus. And then Lord is brought up another eight times in reference to him without his name. So Paul is very zealous that we understand that there's a direct correlation to what's going on to the lordship of Jesus. Now, when we say Jesus is Lord, what do we mean? We mean that he rules and that he reigns. That he is a king. That is what we mean when we say that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord is the fundamental assertion of Christianity that is seen as a political threat around the world. It is not Jesus saves that is the threat. It is Jesus as Lord. Why? Because there's a challenge there for ultimacy. There is a challenge there for supremacy. There's a challenge there for your heart's allegiance. What are you hoping in for not only the good life, but for meaning and purpose and value? Jesus is Lord is a threat to the powers of this age, which is why they were persecuted in the first century, which is why they're persecuted up to this day. But it's not just political. It's a sociological threat. Because if Jesus is Lord, and he's your king, that means you're marching to the beat of his drum. You're following the sound of his trumpet calls. Which means that you are going to live differently. And for all the talk in our even in our age about personal choice and freedom, they hate it. When you walk differently than the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, whatever age it may be, demands conformity. And so Jesus, as Lord, is a threat to the world. And thus, there's persecution. Now, Jesus as Lord is not a new concept in the New Testament. The prophecies of the Old Testament make much of the fact that the coming Messiah is going to be a king. That he's going to usher in righteousness. That the nations will flock to him. That he will establish and rule with justice. A ruler. And, and who knows the number one verse in the Old Testament that's quoted in the New Testament? Or the, the verse from the Old Testament that's quoted the most in the New Testament? Can anyone guess? Well, I'll tell you. It's Psalm 110, verse 1. Hands down. There's no verse in the Old Testament anywhere near quoted as often as Psalm 110, verse 1. And what's that psalm about? About the kingship of the Son. 
the New Testament authors saw Jesus as reigning. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the Lord of lords, as we're told in Revelation. He's the ruler of rulers. Thus, when we see in the Great Commission, what is the basis of the Great Commission? What is the first sentence of it? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And closed borders matter not because I'm in charge. Okay? All authority in heaven and on earth. And so Jesus... When he's doing his earthly ministry, and they're asking, are you doing this by the power of Satan and stuff? And he's like, you know, you can't come into a, a, a strong guy's house and steal his stuff unless you've taken care of the strong guy. So the fact that I'm here, you should draw some inferences about the strong guy. And then he sends out the, he sends out the 60 in two by twos. Or the 72, sorry, and two by twos. And they come back and they're thrilled. They're reporting all the miracles and wonders that they performed. And, and the first thing Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. And then, in the midst of his ministry in John 12, now is the time when the ruler of this world is cast down. Jesus reigns, and the devil and his forces exist, but they no longer call the shots. They no longer run free. The church proceeds through the ages of this present age, and they cannot stop the advancement of the church. That's why Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So where do we get to when we come here? Well, if Jesus is reigning now, not, not just reigning spiritually over Bible studies and sermons and such, but, but actually governing the affairs of the world so that all things come to their appointed end, what does that mean when we have our troubles, and what does it mean then when we look at these signs of the coming end. Well, it helps us see that when it says in verse 1 of chapter 2, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered to, gear, uh, to him, and that in verse 8, by, the, by his appearance, he's going to bring to nothing and kill the man of lawlessness, the devil that's behind him. We see that he's not coming in verse 8 or verse 1 to set up a kingdom that's already in place. He's coming to consummate history, to bring final judgment, to right every wrong, to vindicate every believer, and to usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And so, depending on your perspective, because Revelation 20 
mentions something called a millennium, a thousand-year period of Christ reigning. That will affect how you approach this passage. The, the approach that we saw with dispensationalism last week is called premillennialism, that Jesus comes and then there's a mixed kingdom of believers and unbelievers and he reigns for a thousand years and then he has to have a, a rebellion. But then there's the postmillennial and there's the amillennial. Postmillennial says that Jesus is reigning and the gospel is going forth and at some point the world will be so Christianized that people are essentially following the law of God more or less and this will therefore usher in a golden age that will last a really long time and at the end of this golden age, this millennium, Jesus will then come. And the view that has been the majority view throughout church history gets the worst name, amillennialism. It, it means no millennium, but that's not what amillennialists believe. That the millennium refers to the church age. And it's the belief that Christ is reigning now, calling all nations to himself now, that even as the world exists, there's this kingdom, the kingdom of God that has been that has been brought in from outside, like in the statue of Daniel chapter 4, and that this, this kingdom grows and grows and supplants the kingdoms of the world as it grows, but it grows not by the conversion of nations as geopolitical units, but as converts from the nations. And at the end, he comes and he returns everything to its rightful place. So, in the meantime, what does this mean then? There's going to be hardship. There's going to be struggle. You are going to have to confront wickedness. Just because we suffer doesn't mean that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. We must endure. That's why Jesus said it requires perseverance. But he who perseveres to the end will be saved. Understanding Christ and his lordship and that he reigns even now establishes you so that you can look at passages like this and have a direction to move forward in, which is what we're going to do next week. So come back next week and we're actually going to talk about the restrainer, the rebellion, the man of law. We're actually going to work through the passage. From the starting point that Jesus is reigning now and that everything chapter 2 is talking about takes place within a context that Jesus is king. All right? Let's pray.